Every word of God is pure, and all Scripture has been given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our instruction in righteousness. That portion which forms the basis for our meditation this morning is found in 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. <clears throat> I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven because of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, boasting about material possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. So far our text. Dear fellow redeemed, in Christ Jesus, the one who has rescued us from our past, the one who is constantly with us in the present, and the one who has secured our future, grace and peace be unto you. When I was a young child, my father instructed me to memorize Hebrews 13.8, among other passages. <clears throat> Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that passage has been a blessing for many decades. One of the values of memor memorizing Bible passages. I can remember my grandfather talking to me about how he began his ministry using a horse and buggy. And before the Lord took him home to heaven, human beings had landed on the moon. I can remember my parents talking to me about not ever having a phone in their home. And then later on, and before the Lord took them home to heaven, they were able to carry around a phone with them wherever they went. And I can remember the days when if I wanted to watch television, I could get two, maybe three stations if the antenna was just right and the weather was good, and it was all in black and white. And it was all during the daytime. And now look what happens with the television entertainment. <clears throat> Those three generational stories have in common this. The world changes. The world can change dramatically sometimes. And it can change in ways we hadn't even foreseen. But the one thing that was the same for my grandparents, and the one thing that was the same for my parents, and the one thing that's the same for me, and my children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what a comfort that one truth brings to us in a world of constant change. But that Bible passage is good for more than just that particular note of comfort. It's good for also helping us to understand who is Jesus. Why he's the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is true God. It's also helpful for us to know that we can depend on him. He's not some fickle friend who will be with us today, but will change his opinion about us tomorrow. He's going to be the same. We can count on him today and tomorrow for as many tomorrows as we have in this world. Perhaps the biggest thing about Jesus Christ being the same yesterday, today, and forever is what it means for our yesterday, today, and forever. Our yesterday, today, and forever are not the same now, thanks to Jesus. May God's Spirit bless our study of the word he's recorded. 
What did our yesterdays look like without Jesus? Jesus, It's a really grim picture. We're told about that as we take a look at the second portion of our text, beginning at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. In an age when people don't want to draw black and white lines, here comes one from God himself. And the black and white is, here are the opposite ends of the spectrum. Love of the Father is on one side, and love of the world is on the other side, and you can't, you can't get the two of them together. It's one or the other. The Holy Spirit goes on to describe what the love of the world entails. Verse 16. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, boasting about material possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. The word lust is used three times in our text. First, the lust of the, eye, the flesh. Then it's translated desires, but lust of the eyes. And finally, in verse 17, the world and its lusts pass away. The lust of the flesh. We're reminded of what the, what the Bible tells us about the flesh. And we would never understand these truths, except that God reveals to us. We human beings like to kind of sugarcoat the human condition. And while we might admit, oh, some of us are not so good, God's word is the one that reveals to us that all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. The Bible reveals to us the flesh, excuse me, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. The Holy Spirit and our sinful flesh are also on opposite ends. And our flesh leads us to, we are born in the sinful flesh, and that sinful flesh leads us into all manner of sinful works of the flesh. Galatians enumerates them for us. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. I thought about having all of us stand and then you could sit down as you came to a work of the flesh that you had been guilty of this past week. I suppose some of us could have gotten past a few of the first part, but by the end of that list, none of us would be left standing, unless we were lying to ourselves. The works of the flesh, do you remember how many there were there? It goes rather long, <coughs> rather quickly, but there were 17 of them, 17 works of the flesh. And just in case we might think, well, that's, the, that's an exhaustive list, the Holy Spirit adds that short phrase, and the like. This isn't all that the sinful flesh is capable of. It's capable of even more. The one thing the cap sinful flesh is not capable of is loving and hearing and wanting the Word of God. When the flesh hears the law of God, it's contrary to the law of God. It will not be subject to the law of God. When God says, this is what I want you to do, our flesh cries out, I'm not doing that. I hate you, God. I don't want to hear what you have to say. That's the flesh that we were born with, and that's the flesh that we struggle with. That's the flesh that led Peter to say, I don't know Jesus. I don't know Jesus. I don't know Jesus. That's the flesh that plagued us this past week. It's the flesh that will plague us in the week ahead. And that's the flesh that would dictate our yesterday, today, and forever. It would be a flesh that we were born with, a flesh that continues to produce sins, and would end up putting us into a living hell. Truly and literally a living hell. Except 
except Jesus came. Our text goes on to describe other problems of the world as desires of the eyes. The Savior is the one who spoke to us and said, Whosoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery already in the heart. We're reminded that God isn't looking just at what we do with our hands and our feet, but he's looking at what goes on in our mind, what comes out of what we're doing with our eyes, and of course, what's in the heart. He gave two of the Ten Commandments to deal with the topic of lust. Commandment 9, do not cover your neighbor's house. Any animate, inanimate objects of your neighbor's, do not cover your neighbor's wife, children, the Tenth Commandment, manservant, maidservant, cattle, anything that's your neighbor's, the animate objects, and two of commandments dealing with the topic of lust of the eyes and coveting, reminding us that covetousness is a form of idolatry. And finally, it speaks about boasting about material possessions. Here's an area where human beings are at their worst. Human beings like to boast about the things they've done and, and what their two hands have accomplished in a lifetime. And look, you know, I've worked really hard and I've, I've saved a lot and I've been able to buy this house or buy this car or buy this lakefront property and I've got accumulated a bunch of retirement investments and I've got a lot of stuff and boasting about material possessions. And every time we boast about our material possessions, it's like taking a hand and slapping God in the face because all those blessings came from him. We didn't cover the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer in our confession of faith. But remember how we pray in that confession, in that prayer, that he would give us our daily bread, that he would lead us to appreciate and to receive with thanksgiving all that he gives us for our bodies. He's the one who enables us to have a job. He's the one who gives us gifts and talents to be employed. He's the one who blesses us with health. He's the one who gives us the weather. He's the one who fills our bank account. He's the one who pays our makes our payment paycheck. He's the one who supplies the grocery stores and the markets and builds the cars. And he's behind every single blessing we get. So how in the world could we boast about material possessions? We're reminded in the epistle of James, be careful about when we're talking about our business dealings. Those people had the idea, we're going to go to the marketplace and we're going to sell this and we're going to sell that and we're going to make money. And James had to remind them, all such boasting is vain. Don't you know that our life is like a vapor? We're here today, gone tomorrow. And what you really should say is, I plan to do this, God willing. Likewise, the Savior warned us about the rich young man who said, I've got all these barns. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull down these barns and build bigger barns so I have even more stuff. And then I'll be able to sit back and take it easy. And Jesus called him a fool because that night, his soul would be required of him. Boasting about material possessions is something that the world can do. It can put together its top list of most of the 100 or 1,000 uh, richest people in the world, but it's not something that's part of God, the child of God's life. It's, not, it's part of our sinful flesh, but not part of our new man. Everything in the world is not from the Father, but from the, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. Where will all that boasting of material possessions, where will all that lust of the flesh, where will all that pride of the eye, desire of the eyes end up? It's all going to pass away. And that's where we would have been yesterday, today, and forever, except Jesus entered the picture. And now 
our past, our present, and our future look entirely different because of him. We're taking a look at the structure of the first portion of our text. I've tried to relate the structure by printing it in a certain way in the bulletin. This is perhaps one of the very early New Testament hymns. And you can see a structure that runs through it. So rather than going verse by verse, we're going to go kind of phrase by phrase. John starts off by writing, by saying, I am writing, I am writing, I am writing. He goes on to say, I have written, I have written, I have written. What he's written in the past and what he's writing now all has a certain important message to it. He's writing it to a certain select audience. He's writing it to dear children, little children, fathers, fathers, young men, and young men. When he says dear children, I don't think he has in mind just the little children in the congregation. At this point in time, we think this is one of the last epistles of the New Testament. John is one of the last of the apostles. Uh, history books, not cautioning here, not the Bible, but history book, books seem to imply that John was the only one of the 12 apostles that died a natural death and at an old age. So likely he's, at an, he's an older man, perhaps a senior pastor at the time, and he's writing to his congregation. And he's writing then, when he uses the phrase, dear children, he's, it's a favorite term of his, seven times in the epistle. When he's writing this phrase, he's thinking about how they're children in the faith, how he's kind of like a spiritual father to them. Some of them, many of them perhaps, he's baptized. He's taken them through Bible instruction. He's perhaps married many of them, and he's perhaps also been the one who comforted families at the death of a loved one. And so he refers, has this very close relationship with them, with the congregation, he refers to them as dear children, referring to all of the members of the congregation, young and old, male and female. But then he goes on to talk about fathers. I think when he's talking about the fathers, he's talking about the leaders of the church. And then when he talks about the young men, I think he's talking about the next generation leaders of the church. And so he's addressing the congregation, first all of the congregation, and then especially the leaders of that particular age, and then also the next generation coming up to be leaders in the church. I have writing, I am writing, I am writing. I have written, I have written, I have written. And then he goes on to children, children, fathers, fathers, young men, young men. And then comes the reason why he's writing. Because, 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 because. The first because. Because your sins have been forgiven because of his name. Because of his name, he's referring to Jesus. And we had the opportunity again to be reminded of who Jesus is. Psalm 2, true God. Psalm 8, true man. Who is Jesus? He's the God-man. Who is Jesus? We've entered the Lenten season. He's headed to the cross. He's the Son of God, Son of Man, heading to the cross on Calvary to give his life. So he gave his life so that we could have forgiveness of sins. And notice what it says here. Because your sins have been forgiven you. Here, the Spirit reveals a blessed Bible truth that when Jesus was nailed to the cross on Calvary, he obtained forgiveness of all sins at that point in time. At that point in time, all of our sins were forgiven. It's an amazing doctrine because it doesn't cover just the sins that I've committed this past week. It's committing the sins that I unfortunately will be committing this week because of my flesh. All those sins have been forgiven. All those sins that Peter did that evening, 
all of them were going to be nailed to the cross in just a few short hours. And what a blessed truth it is that no matter what we've done with our past, it's already been forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And whatever happens to us in our weakness, in our sinful flesh in the future, the doubts, the worries, the sins, the flesh that still haunt us, they've been forgiven already too. Now this doctrine is so amazing that it's not something we can hear just once. It's something that we have to be reminded of. And so in our church services, we go through the process again of announcing forgiveness of sins in his name. In the Lord's Supper, Jesus comes again and says, I want you to know this. I don't want you just to hear it with your ears. I want you to see it and I want you to taste it. So I'm going to work a miracle and put with this bread, ordinary bread, my body, the one that's going to be given, that was given on the cross, and with this ordinary wine, I'm going to put my blood which was shed on the cross so you can be doubly assured your sins have been taken care of. Oh, the devil's still around, and he still accuses us, and he still plagues us, and our consciences still have troubles with it. And the more we get separated from the Word of God, the worse it can grow for us. But God's announcement to us is clear, bold, and striking. Your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus. I'm writing to you, fathers, again, again he goes on to say, because you've known Jesus from the beginning. He's repeated this. This is repeated twice in this particular hymn. Twice, I think, for sake of emphasis. You have known Jesus. You've known Jesus. You know who he is. You know about his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. You know about his coming again. You know Jesus is the high priest, prophet, and king. Goes on to say, you've overcome the evil one. He uses that twice too, referring to the devil. Yes, the devil can still plague us, but we already have the victory over the devil in Christ. He's thrashing about in death throes, but he's been conquered, he's been destroyed, and we overcome him. And again, he goes on to say, you've known, you've known the Father. As you know Jesus, you know the Father as well. And while we, don't, we didn't have the privilege that Moses had of that close encounter with the glory of the Lord, we have known the glory of the Lord as we've known Christ Jesus. And finally, I'm writing because you are strong and the word of God remains in you. Because you are strong? That seems to be the opposite of the message this weekend. Because of our flesh, we are so weak. But we are strong when the word of God remains in us. As that word of God remains in us, we continue to daily drown the old Adam, the sinful flesh, with repentance, and continually a new man arises and walks before God in righteousness and purity. You are strong because the word of God remains in you. And now comes the opposite. Remember the love of the world? Excuse me, the love of God, of the Father, and the love of the world. Opposites can't get them together. Now here comes another opposite. The world passes away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. They can't get together either. And so when you look at this particular text, you're reminded about where we have come from. Our yesterday was not very good. It was a horrible account of sins against the holy God. It was a horrible account until Jesus came. Until the love of the Father sent him, the one who was the same yesterday, today, and forever, has now changed our yesterday. So now our yesterday 
and our today and our forever are wrapped up in Him, our Savior. And because they're wrapped up in Him, it'll never change. We will live forever. Amen.